Hello everybody. I hope you are doing well this fine winter evening or summer day wherever you are depending on where you are. And I hope you're all healthy and well. So welcome to the 76th live episode of Ask Abhijit. Today I'm going to take questions from the live chat. So let's get going. Ask me your best questions. But before that let me say good evening or good day to everyone. I can see uh, Umang Sharma, Rishit Rai, Sumit Kumar, Ash Ketchum, Nomesh Kumar, Stay Fit, Stay Strong, The Lonely Seeker, Seeker Divya Jeet Singh, Tamagna Biswas, uh, Lavya Soni Himanshu, Kush Dev, Sankarshan, Sankarshan Dungar Singh Chauhan, Abhyanshu, Keshav, Udit, Argya, Ublesh, Piyush Chiching, Ayan Chakravarti, Harshada, Adish, and everybody else. Good evening, good day to all of you. Great to be back with you all again. So let's see what questions you all have asked thus far. Let's see what, what is there. Um, lots of comments already. That's great. Let me And I will take a few questions from the comments uh, that you have placed in the videos as well, just to keep things uh, flowing. So there were many questions I could not take yesterday. I may take a few of those as well today. Right. Okay, let's go. Let's begin with uh, this question by Devan. Since Bharat, Bharat, since Bharat is considered to be the son of Shakuntala, who is a character in by Kalidas, and Bharat is considered to be the ancestor of the Pandavas, doesn't it conclude that Mahabharat is a myth? <laughs> Uh, this guy, what's his name? William Shakespeare. He wrote a play called Julius Caesar. Does that make Julius Caesar a myth? What logic is this, sir? Think logically. If an ancient Indian writer, playwright takes a historical figure and, and writes a play about him, does, that, does it make the person a, a myth, a mythical figure? If, if uh, today, tomorrow, somebody would write a play, let's say, about, uh, let me take someone randomly, Ravindranath, Ravindranath Tagore. Will it make Ravindranath Tagore a mythical figure? Will it make the 20th century a myth? Please think logically, sir. It doesn't work like this. All right. Let us... Um... Again, the same question. <laughs> Let's take some other questions. Let me remove this one. All right. And um, Akhil Achare says, why doesn't India reunite with Bangladesh? Will it create a problem if both the countries unite? Um, there are cultural issues, religious issues, right? Bangladesh is a different culture, a different, uh, they have a different religious uh, mainstream over there. And uh, it all came out of the two-nation theory, and they, I'm sure, they believe in the two-nation theory. They are the uh, the the nation of Bangladesh is an outcome of of that essentially. I mean, India had the chance to reunite the two uh, regions in 1971. Bangladesh was out of India for just 23 years by that time, and it's always been part of India. So India could have done it at that time for some reason. Which, what is the reason? It eludes me. We did not do it. Today we have millions, maybe tens of millions of Bangladeshis, illegal immigrants all across India. 
in every city and town and village of the country they are being uh, tolerated and settled by the politicians for vote bank politics purposes so we already have them in the country it's changing the demography and it's causing all kinds of problems it's placing an additional burden on the economy and so on and so forth so um, eventually i think we will have to just reabsorb bangladesh if if this continues because it looks like the uh, borders with bangladesh seem to be completely porous completely open they just seem to be allowed in whenever they wish it it almost looks like that so if that is the case just reabsorb the country yeah if you just want to keep on allowing the, these infiltrators to come into india i mean in the last 10 years how many deportations have happened despite all the political promises uh, negligible i i don't think there were even a thousand deportations in the last 10 years plus i may be mistaken off by a few few by some numbers but you know you get the big picture that i'm trying to give you right don't focus on the uh, focus on the details focus on the big picture so clearly we are absorbing more and more bangladeshis but we are not <laughs> deporting anyone they are all getting uh, genuine indian documentation you have a pan card aadhar card that's it you're a citizen then right so that's what's happening so i think eventually india will have to reabsorb bangladesh in one way or the other whether they like it or not boohoo okay um recently neena gupta won the ramajanujan prize and an indian mathematician nikhil shrivastav solved 62 year problem 62 year old problem do you think that india can again become the land of mathematicians just like in the past yes of course it can of course india can become the number one mathematical superpower in the world there's no question about it revamp the education system stop destroying talent and promote talent see what happens overnight okay uh this is an interesting question can you please speak about the ammonids and in which era they were alive and what did they eat for survival and how is it related to shaligram stone which is auspicious to lord vishnu okay let me explain what an ammonite is let me share my screen uh this here okay this is what an ammonite looks like so it's clearly a, a kind of marine mollusk a cephalopod you can see that they they are found as fossils some of them are enormous as you can see look at that check it out and you find small ones as well smaller ones that can be held in your hand that way but yes people focus on the gigantic ones but you can find lots of these uh, in in the fossil record and these are animals that lived in the past i think they lived this is what this is a reconstruction of what it would have looked like these uh, animals lived in shells they are closely related to the octopuses and uh, squids and nautilus nautiloids etc that are uh, present today so this is what an ammonite looked like they came in different sizes and shapes uh and they are also found as fossils iridescent fossils you can see it it kind of shines and glows and it has an iridescent sheen within it as you can see so that is what an ammonite is now let me uh, remove that okay so in which era were they alive so let's begin with when they died out so these are extinct animals it's a family of animals that went extinct entirely and it went extinct ammonites went extinct Uh, during the cretaceous paleogene extinction event 
of 65 66 million years before today the extinction event that killed off the majority of the dinosaurs but not all so these were marine animals that lived in the oceans and they died out during the same event that killed off most of the dinosaurs and i think they first emerge on the fossil fossil record about 500 or 400 million years before today maybe 450 or so look it up look it up okay so that's the rough approximate figure i can give you and uh, we don't quite know what they ate for survival i think they would have eaten plankton or microscopic uh, marine organisms mostly plankton i would imagine uh, so plankton is microscopic or very small not exactly microscopic but very small marine animals there are two kinds of plankton there is phytoplankton which is uh, which is actually marine plants the same size as those marine animals so there is phytoplankton and there's the regular plankton so even today the plankton is available it's it's present all across the oceans the whales especially the baleen whales eat plankton that's what they eat that's their prim- primary source of nutrition so it's most likely that these ammono ammonids would have eaten ancient plankton from the oceans which was available in plentitude in the ancient oceans how is it related to the shaligram stone i think such uh, fossils are even available in are even found in river beds etc in, in various parts of india maybe in northern india as well maybe i i think there's a river in nepal as well which is famous for these fossils and culturally uh, they are believed to be uh, i don't know not quite sure what's the cultural connection they seem to be uh, regarded as auspicious a form of divinity a form of lord vishnu or auspicious lord vishnu lord shiva i'm not quite sure about that i can give you the answer from a biological perspective and a fossil record perspective but yes i i am aware of the fact that these are held as auspicious and sacred in some way not an expert in that so maybe you can look that up separately Okay, let us take some other questions. Um, let us see. Uh, Kazakhstan, Belarus. I will speak about that separately. Uh, Piercing says, when there are excavations of ancient uh, human remains, why do we? <laughs> <laughs> why do we only find male and female skeletons but not other 72 genders i think ancient humans were we need to can- cancel our ancestors all of them we need to cancel them all because they only had two genders how how rude how whatever phobic i don't even know what phobic it is but yeah they only had two genders ridiculous ridiculous how dare they how dare they only have two genders there should be a entire gender spectrum right what do they call those gender spectrums um not sure what they call them but they, they there is a, gender is supposed to be a social construct these days in the minds of certain people it's not biological anywhere it's not a biological reality so the question the, the question piyush has asked is a brilliant question why do the ancient human remains only occur in two genders incredible our ancient ancestors were well they should be cancelled for this this sort of behavior mm. have a humans descended from mars on earth well show me the evidence i am perfectly willing to to 
consider hard evidence seriously. Show me the evidence that humans have descended from Mars. There is no such evidence. Therefore, I would say that it is a highly improbable, implausible hypothesis. There is not even there's there's not even a shadow of evidence that any such thing may have happened. Right? It's all speculation at best. So no. From the evidence we have, there is no such no such uh, there's no such evidence. Uh, if the British hadn't come, would Kerala and Tamil Nadu be different countries? I would say I would argue the opposite. There is so much. Uh, there is this fractiousness in the Indian nation today. The Indian nation is a loose confederation of of diff, of wildly opposing interests, and uh, there is too much democracy, like the Chinese would say. There's too much federalism. Our politicians like to pretend or at least say in public that India's great strength is the federal structure of India. It is the biggest Achilles heel of India. And it is the consequence of the British occupation of India. And the foreign constitution that was accepted by by their stooges when India was given the dominion status and then the transfer uh, transfer of power happened to the Congress party. They adopted a constitution and a, a structure, a system of governance that keeps India incredibly weak. Kerala, Tamil Nadu are beautiful, beautiful examples of Indian culture. They would not have been different countries. We are a very diverse people, but we are one people. This is something I have to keep saying on every single episode. Uh, so no, I completely disagree. If India was uh, had reverted to its civilizational, historical civilizational form of governance, then it, and then India would have been much more unified, much stronger, much more cohesive, and we would have actually been we would possibly have been able to create a larger confederation beyond the political boundaries of India. Something like an EU kind of system with countries that have for the past 2000 years been closely, closely associated with our civilization. The entirety of Southeast Asia essentially, even China, even Japan, the whole of Eastern Asia was essentially greater India. It was deeply, deeply influenced by Indian culture, Indian civilizational, Indian values, and so on and so forth. I mean, nobody can deny this. No historian can deny this. Even if they try, they simply can't. There's too much evidence. So it is because of the foreign constitution, the foreign system of governance, the foreign institutions that we have preserved after the transfer of power, as if nothing has ever changed. It's because of that that all these ideas are present in people's minds because every state has been ruled by politicians who want to create more divisions in order to get votes. You create divisions, you create uh, a sense of a sense of victimhood, then you get votes. Right. So, so that's the kind of politics we have adopted and we are witnessing the consequences of that. It's, it's a tragic thing. We need, we need strong enough leaders who can reverse this. And it's not, not, it's not going to happen overnight. We may already have strong enough leaders, but the situation is such that it will take at least a couple of decades minimum 
to turn things around. Because there's too much foreign interference in India, which most people are simply blind to. Everything in every sphere of uh, Indian life, there is foreign interference. You just, you just don't realize it. In every institution in India, there is foreign interference. It's as if certain external powers are telling India how to live, how to manage its, uh, its, its internal affairs. That's what's happening. And these are extraordinarily powerful foreign powers. Right, so it's going to take time for India to rise to a certain level where we can start pushing back. Okay. What's this question? Arya word is Semitic in origin, meaning high mountain place in North Vedic. North Vedic. Is it true? No. Unfortunately, uh, this claim is the, this is the, this is the first time I'm seeing this claim being made. Arya is a Sanskrit word. And we know what it means. It doesn't mean any other thing. If, if there is some word in some Semitic or other language family which is similar to that, I don't care about it. It, it, is, uh, it is not relevant to the Indo-Iranian Indo world. Arya is a Sanskrit word and it means noble. That's it. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> let's see some other questions. New documentaries, where are they? They are coming. We do one thing at a time. So right now I'm beginning to focus on the podcast, on the conversations with various people. I already have some people lined up. They, they, they will be released first. So once I am settled in a routine, when it comes to the conversations, I'm going to start the documentaries. And it is coming soon. It is coming soon. By the end of the month, you will have the first documentary for sure. So let's take it uh, with that timeline in mind. All right. Um, uh, Saket says, what explanation does science give for the Mandela effect, which many people experience? What exactly is the Mandela effect? It's when people have certain memories of things that never happened. Is that what it is? A collective memory of events that never happened. I think that's what the Mandela effect is. I think it's uh, nothing to do with science. It's about a, it's something to do with psychology, is it? Not quite sure. Maybe I will look it up and uh, I'm not sure it's deeply rooted in science. Most likely it may be. Um, if, you, if you consider psychology to be a hard science. So maybe, but I am not quite sure about this. Yes, I've heard about this, that people have this collective uh, false memory of things that never really happened. And yeah, that's a, it's an interesting phenomenon, but I'm not quite sure what is the causative factor or factors of this phenomenon. All right. Um, Guru Krishna says, I'm currently doing my MSc in Applied Physics with Material Science Specialization. Can I do an MTech in Aerospace Engineering on or PhD in different disciplines of physics? Well, you need to ask the university that you're interested in. I have no issue with you doing anything, right? But unfortunately, the education system is highly bureaucratic. They have all these arcane and quite often silly rules that if you have this specialization or if you have this history, then you can't do certain things. Every university has different rules. I think most of the rules are managed by the UGC, which is, which is another dinosaur of an organization, institution. It is still mired in the 19th and 20th century colonialism. 
the UGC. So I'm not quite sure. I, I have no issue. See, if you're doing MSc in applied physics with whatever specialization, it means you have a good background in, in basic physics, in the fundamentals of physics. Because if you are doing a master's degree in any specialization of physics, it, it ensures that you have a good understanding, a good mastery of the basics, the fundamentals. And if your fundamentals are good, you can take anything. So engineering is nothing but applied physics, again. Right. Engineering just essentially, uh, especially aerospace engineering, it is all about Newtonian physics mostly. So I don't see why there should be any issue in you doing an MTech after this or a PhD in some other discipline, as long as you have the fundamentals right. So I don't see any reason why not. But well, various universities, etc., they have different rules. So you will need to check with uh, whatever whatever school, university, etc. you are interested in. So you need to be very careful in checking that. And I wish you all the best. Uh, what do you think about the existence of Planet Nine? There seems to be reasonable um, circumstantial evidence that there is a massive object that is shepherding the outer solar system object in a certain way. So what we have is that we've got the major eight or nine planets, whatever you want to call them, eight or nine. I, I still see Pluto as a planet. I don't care what people say. <laughs> so they are all more or less in the same plane. But uh, I think I think Neptune is slightly tilted. Was it or is it Uranus? One of these two. Pluto also has a reasonably weird eccentric orbit. But if you look at the objects beyond the orbit of Pluto, then you will find that they are all tilted with respect. Most of them are tilted with respect to the plane of the solar system, the plane of the major planets, and they are all clustered in a certain way, which you can deduce using uh, using uh, Newtonian mechanics, dynamics, Newtonian physics, that there seems to be another mass somewhere, an un unknown, unseen mass, and a large, massive mass at that, which is kind of shepherding them in a certain direction. <clears throat> Uh, so yeah, there, there does seem to be evidence of the existence of an, of an unknown massive object, a planet, most likely, uh, out there in the darkness of the outer solar system. Right. And maybe it has a period, I mean, a period, a orbital period of maybe 10,000 or so years, perhaps. So it is still a work in progress. Not everyone is convinced, but there seems to be a building consensus that this object seem or should exist out there. So I think it is something that uh, we scientists need to take very seriously and we need to uh, refine our calculations and try and look for this object and try and, and construct a tentative orbit of this object and then look for it there if it is if it is possible. Maybe we could use the new James Webb Space Telescope to, if it has planetary science applications, to search for this, if there is enough time given to it. Uh, the James Webb Space Telescope is now fully deployed. It is still moving towards the L2 Lagrange point. It's going to reach there in about, I don't know, half a month or so, maybe 20 days. And then it's going to be calibrated for, uh, there is going to be testing calibration for the next six months or so, five, six months, and then it's going to be fully operational, certainly by the second half of the year, by the end of the year for sure. Maybe we could use that to look for this if in the, infra in the infrared spectrum. So maybe that could help. All right. Um, 
Okay, let's take some other questions. Shikhar Saraf says, if you get a time machine for once, in which era of history would you go? Well, why would you go to one era of history? I would go to all the eras of history and they check, check out what actually was going on. So if you have a time machine, use it to see all the eras of history. If you can only use it for once, maybe the Vedic era, maybe 10,000 years before today, so, so as to understand uh, what our ancestors were like, what the lifestyle and culture was like, and what the great river Saraswati was like in those days. So maybe that would be the era, maybe between five and 10,000 years before today. That's maybe where I would go if I had only one opportunity to use the time machine. And otherwise, I, I, I don't mind looking into the future as well, you know. <laughs> right. Interesting question. <clears throat> I have spoken about Ram Situ multiple times. What was the role of World War II in the independence of India? Well, multiple, see, it's not just a single linear thing. There are multiple effects of the Second World War. <clears throat> First of all, it nearly bankrupted the UK. It nearly bankrupted Britain. And by this time, there was nothing left in India to plunder. India had been totally destroyed and sucked dry. And uh, it was too much of an effort for the British to administer this entire subcontinent from so far away. So they thought, let's cut our losses and get out of India. There's nothing more to be uh, gained from hanging on to India. So that is one thing. That's what hastened the transfer of power to the Congress party. And the second thing is that the Indian... Uh, soldiers who fought for the British in the Indian Army, the Indian Navy, the Royal Indian Navy and so on, they were becoming very dissatisfied with the British and they saw what was happening uh, with respect to Netaji Subhash Chandra Bose and the Indian National Army and they were very dissatisfied and this sense of nationalism, patriotism was growing among them and then there was the, the so-called Indian Navy revolt, Royal Indian Navy revolt or rebellion or whatever you, you want to call it and they were able to um, quell it with the help of the Congress party leaders like Mr. Patel who gave certain assurances with that which were never kept, which were immediately broken but by this time the British knew that India is a virtual tinderbox, it's like a ticking bomb the Indian armed forces are becoming restless, nationalistic, and they see us as foreign occupiers of India. Right? So these are the effects of, some of the effects of the Second World War. And the first half of the 20th century was quite pivotal in what happened in India. For instance, you had the unnecessary and completely, completely unnecessary involvement in the Khilafat movement in India, which was all done by Mr. Gandhi. Mr. Gandhi. What was the need to do that? And all of that. So there are multiple causes, multiple factors that all accumulated in the British withdrawal from India. The hasty, the hasty, the hurried withdrawal from India. But things went, well, they were able to ensure that their puppets, their stooges were put in place in India. So it was a transfer of power. 15th of August 1947 was not independence. FYI, my friends, it was not India's independence. It was dominion status. India became a republic in 1950 or something. Check out the details. And that too, it became a colonized republic. Nothing has changed. The same institutions were continued. A foreign, a foreign constitution was imposed upon India without the consent of the Indian people, which is completely undemocratic.
when you imp- when you write a new constitution it has to be put to a vote a referendum that do you the people of india accept this or do you reject it this opportunity was never given to the people of india who the hell was the, was, was the constituent assembly to say that they represented the will of the people of india they represented the will of less than 13% of the people of india so these facts have been hidden from you all so we are today not independent we are still under shackles we are still unfree we are still colonized and 99% of indians don't even know that they don't even realize that sheep i do not mean to disrespect but this is the attitude that sheep have they lo- they live in their nice happy world the good shepherd will is taking care of us every day we don't have to worry we can just relax eat grass all day we have a nice safe uh, safe shelter to sleep in in the night we have kids our kids are also taken care of everything is hunky dory until one fine day one fine day in the morning when you end up in the slaughterhouse but it happens one by one so you don't realize you think your friend who went off to to some place maybe he has gone to a better place or she has gone to a better place so you never know what's happening so that's the situation in india today unfortunately <clears throat> what to do then firstly educate yourself once you understand what's happening educate your friends and family speak about this if you can write write about this speak about this spread the word once there is a critical mass of understanding the current system will no longer be tenable it it's not going to happen tomorrow or next week or next month but if if we all speak about this if we spread the awareness in the next 20 years you're going to have different kinds of leaders coming out of india especially the young people they will have a different understanding they will have a correct picture of india so it thinks see that the unit unit of change in history the unit of time in history and in geopolitics is the decade if you look at events at sub decadal level levels you will see almost no change happening you will see that everything is the same but if you look at a nation or a period of history from a decade decade by decade level then you will see how changes happen so i would say it will take at least a couple of decades for the for a significant change to happen from the point of view of awareness among the youth among the youngsters the old folks they never going to change they're not going to change their mindset their mindset is set in stone so all we need to do is ensure that the youngsters are made aware of this today's 10 year olds 12 year olds 15 years old 20 year olds 25 year olds these young people still have have an open mind as you get older your mind gets closed and rigid youngsters are open to new ideas they're open to seeing the truth they want the truth youngsters are rebellious by nature it's a good thing right so it's they who hold the keys to the future of the civilization and what needs to be done is this all of this needs to be communicated not by one person 10 people by all of you by all of you so do that it's a, you know there there is power in numbers and we have the numbers you know so that's what needs to happen all right please speak about the ninjas and the samurai well um maybe i should bring in an expert from japan to talk about this but uh, the samurai were the were essentially the kshatriyas of japan in the past 1000 plus years uh they were the protectors of the realm 
they were also from time to time great warlords they even became de facto rulers of japan from time to time in different eras they also had internecine warfare um, they used to fight each other from time to time and all but uh, they had what is known as the code of the samurai the bushido code which is a set of moral principles that they would live and die by right so they would die for the code and they had a very clear set of rules and principles that they absolutely adhered to the your honor was was more important than your life and the practice of seppuku or harakiri is part of that you know once you feel that you have dishonored yourself and your people in your nation in your culture or whatever it is better to commit harakiri seppuku in a ritual manner which essentially uh, restores the honor that you you lost so that is what the samurai were they are very very well their 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 mission their lifestyle their code of honor it is essentially in a way very much the same as the code of honor of the kshatriya people of india or the rajputs of india honor was paramount duty was paramount respecting your elders respecting women respecting and and so on and so forth you know so that's what bushido was that was the code of the samurai and the samurai were destroyed as an institution in the late 19th century by the meiji emperor during the so called meiji restoration so they were traditionalists the samurai they refused to fight with modern weapons do you see parallels with certain indian <laughs> uh peoples so they were traditionalists they were they, they believed in tradition they refused to fight with modern weapons you would have these uh, soldiers standing with rifles and the samurai would take out a sword charge and die in the process so their refusal to change with the time led to their demise and they essentially were uh, marginalized and destroyed as an institution in the late 19th century by the meiji emperor during the meiji restoration who were the ninjas the ninjas were the ninjas essentially were assassins they were assassins in japan so that's a very small subset of the people of japan and they had this art called ninjutsu which was the art of the ninja and they had certain specific weapons the shuriken which is the the star shaped uh, throwing uh, a throwing weapon it's shaped like a star and they would also use various toxins poisons and they were really good at uh being stealthy and so on and so forth so, so that's what the ninjas were i am giving you a very very uh brief outline it's a fascinating topic that you have brought out maybe in the future if i can get in touch with some expert from japan about these topics then maybe i, I can do that so i'll put that on my to do list long term to do list how are we still colonized figure it out sir i just laid it out in excruciating detail so please figure it out <clears throat> gautam buddha got enlightenment at bodhgaya but in the present day nobody follows buddhism here in bodhgaya bihar why you know western civilization emerged out of ancient greek culture nobody practices ancient greek culture or religion in greece why why because it was destroyed by the abrahamic cults right similarly what happened to the practice of buddhist uh, to what happened to buddhist practices in in uh, magadh in bihar 
it was all eradicated, uprooted, destroyed to the last person by the Turks, by the invading Turks. Today's Marxist historians try to portray Hinduism, they call it Brahmanism, as the force that destroyed uh, Buddhist practices in India. That is completely not true. Totally not true. Firstly, I have said this and I am going to keep saying it, Buddhism and Hinduism are not separate things. There may be minute differences and Indians simply lack the understanding of the big picture view of things. Indians only want to concentrate on small, tiny, minute things and then blow them out of proportion. And it is not your fault, my dear friends. It is the education system that does that. They ask you to write an essay in the exam and you make one small spelling mistake somewhere. You get one name wrong. You say 1532 instead of 1531, then you will get half the marks. Then half the marks will be deducted. So Indians are forced to only focus from childhood on small minute details with, and they simply never understand how to look at the big picture. And that's why Indians think they have been led to believe that Buddhism and Hinduism are separate because there is these small little one or two differences between them. But look at the values. They are the same values. Look at the principles. They are the same principles. Look at the belief in karma. It's the same. 99.9% of things are the same. Look at the practice of Buddhism in Thailand, in, in Vietnam, in Japan, in Korea. Look at the deities, the worship as Buddhist deities. They are, these are all Hindu gods. But people simply won't see that. They won't see the big picture. They will look at tiny details. Please change your mindset, my dear friends. Please, I implore you. So Buddhism, Hinduism are not separate things. In the great university of Nalanda and other places, they taught the Vedas as well. But Nalanda is portrayed as a Buddhist university for some reason by India's so-called scholars who are liars. Everything was taught in Nalanda. The Buddhist precepts of the, of the Lord Buddha, the Vedic precepts, the, the Vedas, the Puranas, the Upanishads, everything was taught in Nalanda. When you look at the so-called Buddhist scholars who went to China and exported Indian texts, do you know how many Vedic texts were exported? Do you know that they were also experts in the four Vedas? They will not tell you this. Kumarajiva, the great Kumarajiva, whose statues you will find all across, uh, across uh, China and Chinese-occupied territories, he was an expert in the four Vedas apart from the pre precept of the Buddha. They will not tell you this. Buddhism, Hinduism is the same thing. When the Turks came to India, invaded and occupied India, they had seen mainly what are called Buddhist practices across Central Asia because that was a prevalent flavor of Dharma, which was prevalent in Central Asia. So they called these statues Buddh. And wherever they saw uh, practices that looked like the practices they had seen in Central Asia, they wanted to destroy them because they were barbarians. Barbarians not by blood, but barbarians by behavior. Murderers. Genocidal maniacs. That's what they were. The same Turks defended India in the Turk Shahi dynasty in Gandhar. The same Huns became part of Indian culture. But their descendants later on became the monsters who destroyed much of India and Indian culture. So the Turks, they saw, whenever, wherever they saw something that looked like the Buddhism they had seen in Central Asia, they wanted to uproot and eradicate it, eradicate that. So that's why they destroyed all of India's universities because there was, there were aspects of Buddhism quite visible there. So they destroyed all of India's universities. They beheaded tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of teachers and monks and students, millions, I'd say millions. And that's why wherever they saw Buddhism, they killed the teachers, the practitioners, the and destroyed libraries, universities and all that. That's why 
what you guys call hinduism still survive because they did not go for it in with that viciousness they went for what they perceived as the both both the practices so it is a turk that eradicated what you guys call buddhism from india not just from bodhgaya but across the indian subcontinent from gandhar to vanga vanga pradesh bengal and uh, i would say in the south also even eventually they never conquered lanka which is why lanka is still you will see that the sinhalese people they practice what is called buddhism today right and they did not conquer southeast asia which is why thailand burma and all the other southeast asian countries they practice what we call buddhism but in thailand you will see the worship of ganesh everywhere the worship of vishnu everywhere now are these buddhist gods no these are dharmic gods for god's sake right so that's the answer my dear friends and i would request you all <laughs> i would like to request you all that when i say these things i am showing you a certain path a certain direction i am hoping that you guys will do some of your own research and study this further how do you do it do a google search and look at the first 50 results in detail it takes time i'm not going to spoon feed you with facts and details and references it's going to take time for you to understand this properly you think i i learned this in a, over a weekend <laughs> so please do your own research i can show you the direction i cannot spoon feed you it is not feasible for me to spoon feed you i am giving you the information that i have whatever i've learned over the decades please do your own research you are all intelligent people all of you please use that intelligence please dis- rediscover it and use it be curious ask questions go to google or whatever your favorite search engine is and examine all of this in great detail all the information is available in the public domain you just need to know how to look for it so please please do that all right uh, let me take um <clears throat> some questions that were asked in the previous comment so there is one here wanted to know the roots of vegetarianism are humans anatomically omnivore or vegetarians or is it for survival this is an interesting question so if you look at the human digestive system the length of the intestines etc it is quite short compared to herbivorous animals like cattle cows buffaloes deer right the human digestive system is shorter then herbivorous animals that is one piece of evidence the intestines if you look at if you lay it out in a straight line it's going to be much shorter than that of a herbivorous animal number 2 our teeth are flat we don't have those yeah dracula teeth right i mean we do have some canines four canine teeth but that's it so it's a vestige from a much older time when our animal our ancestors may have been purely may may have been purely uh carnivorous animals perhaps like 50 million years before today when our ancestors were rat like or shrew like creatures mammals but today we have flat teeth which indicates that we may have been in the recent past primarily vegetarian primarily but our digestive system is short 
when you are a herbivorous animal a ruminant animal you have a much 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 more extended digestive system cows and buffaloes and cattle have multiple stomachs we only have one which also indicates that in recent times we have been consuming meat our ancestors have been consuming meat maybe in the last million 2 million years if you look at our closest cousins our closest relatives the chimpanzees and the gorillas the chimpanzees are omnivores they eat whatever they, whatever comes to their hand they even engage in cannibalism other monkeys at times or even sometimes other chimpanzees brutal vicious wild <laughs> savage violent apes like us our other cousins the gorillas are purely vegetarian so it's a mixed bag so from the evidence we have our teeth indicate we are primarily vegetarian we do have some canine teeth i think four canine teeth maybe more if you're a dentist you may you may correct me look at the big picture please <laughs> and our digestive system is shorter than that of a typical herbivorous animal which indicates that we are omnivores we are omnivores now the roots of vegetarianism in india are philosophical cultural spiritual we lived our ancestors in the past 70000 years lived in the indian subcontinent in a land of plenty everything you could ask the gods for was available right we had lush forests amazing fruit trees very fertile soil this beautiful monsoon twice a year in some places and so on so you could develop agriculture you could grow things and you had so so many plentiful vegetables and fruits so i think after our ancestors settled down in india there was no need for for competition because it is such a vast land such a plentiful land that there was plenty for everybody so india became a peaceful society in the past 70000 years and a certain kind of culture developed the dharmic culture so it's a peaceful culture it's a it's the highest civilization the world has ever seen that we know of right so the the idea of eschewing unnecessary violence was at the heart of dharmic culture right so don't cause unnecessary suffering to anything whether it's plants animals whatever you need to eat fruits and uh, vegetables but why unnecessary unnecessarily kill animals when you can get the same nutrition from plants so it's a cultural concept it's at the heart of dharma and it's not mandated for everybody historically people who are warriors would have eaten meat right and and we have evidence of of uh, of meat eating that we find from place to place time to time in the ancient historical archaeological record in india it is undeniable we find fishing hooks we find uh, bones of various animals with cut marks and burn marks on their on them which is a telltale sign of what happened but india for the past i don't know how many thousand years has been primarily vegetarian because of cultural philosophical spiritual or so you can call it religious reasons there was no need for this you could get your nutrition as much as you wanted from other sources so don't hurt other living beings unnecessarily so that is the roots of vegetarianism i think the dharmic culture is the only culture that i know of that emphasizes uh, the superiority of a non-violent life and a vegetarian life but it's not forced or imposed upon anyone uh, so that's what i can say about this an interesting question let us see some more live questions
Are there any mentions of Brahmins eating meat and drinking wine? You know what? I am not an expert in this. I have not uh, gone through millions of pages of ancient literature. So, my answer is I don't know. I don't know. Most likely, you would not find too many mentions in ancient literature of the priestly class of Indians eating meat and drinking wine. But you would certainly find mentions of the warrior class of people. And the uh, the classes of people that engaged in physical, hard physical labor, they would have eaten meat. And I would not be surprised to see that. But I don't have a definitive answer because I have not studied this particular uh, question in detail. All right. <laughs> What's the origin of galia or abusive words in our day-to-day -day language? Did the Mughals and British introduce them? Did ancient Indians use them? You know, abusive words uh, that are spoken in the vernacular languages in India are mostly of Persian origin, I would say. I'm not going to repeat those words. But not the British, the Persians. And the Turks introduced the Persian language into India. The so-called Mughals were actually Turks. And they used Persian as the official language of India because they had this inferiority complex. They considered Persian to be a superior culture to them. So they used Persian as the court language while they were occupying India, the so-called Mughals. And because of that, various Persian words entered common parlance in India, especially in northern and western India. You will see languages like Gujarati are full of Persian words and Arabic words as well. Gujarati people uh, wish each, each other happy new year, the Gujarati new year, by saying Sal Mubarak. There you see. And you will see lots of other uh, uh, other such Persian and Arabic and even Turkic words uh, that are quite prevalent in the languages of northern India as well. There are lots of examples. I'm not going into that. So most of these abusive, crass, crude words came in with these uh, languages through introgression and infiltration and occupation, right? But can you claim that ancient Indians did not use abusive language? I will not make that claim. Study Sanskrit and you will find that every word you can imagine is present either as a pure word or as a sandhi. There are certain abusive words in, let's say, Russian, which are the equivalent of certain English four-letter words, which have Sanskrit roots. So I, so it is incorrect to believe that our ancient ancestors during the classical era, the classical Sanskrit era and the, the Vedic era would never have used abusive language. Come on. We're human beings. We had higher culture at the time. But people are people, right? We have the same emotions, the same everything. And the thing about Sanskrit is that there are so many synonyms for any word you can imagine. The word for love has more than 90 synonyms in Sanskrit. The word for snow, snow, has more than, I think, 10 or 20 synonyms in Sanskrit. Different kinds of snow in different uh, contexts and so on and so forth. So Sanskrit is such a rich language that you will find synonyms for everything in there, multiple synonyms for various things. So I would encourage you to kindly look into it 
there are online sanskrit dictionaries that you can find i will not give you the link google it use your curiosity look it up come on guys and girls right was mr gandhi secretly a british mole on a mission to destroy hindu culture i will leave that judgment to you i have spoken about various facts recorded facts about mr gandhi on many occasions i have given references to books about mr gandhi modern books about mr gandhi with factual data in them on multiple occasions please look through that and i will leave this judgment the final judgment to all of you please use the data i have provided and please use your own intelligence and wisdom to come to a conclusion so here we go again who was the greatest warrior between arjun and karna who was the greatest warrior and so on and so forth ad infinitum arjun was the superior person the superior human being and the superior warrior i don't care what your favorite tv serial shows you i had recently spoken about this matter in a couple of videos and i got comments from some people saying i am waiting for your apology video because she had seen something else in her favorite tv serial so please do not react to data that doesn't agree with your preconceived notions don't react emotionally to it react intelligently to it karn was an inferior person he was not a great human being he was hot tempered he was impulsive he was abusive and he was not the better warrior tv series they need new controversies to attract attention and eyeballs and trps and that's why they will distort history they will back project present day notions etc and and world views and ideas into something that happened many thousands of years ago so please if you want to really understand the mahabharat era read a translation or read the actual text read a translation in your native language read a translation into hindi read a translation into english read an abridged version if necessary or read the original sanskrit but you have to do a reading complete reading once otherwise who the hell do you think you are to consider yourself an expert from tv serials are you kidding me please please approach the right uh please use the right approach when examining historical events you don't become an expert by watching a tv series you become <laughs> well your mind is then filled with lies if you see tv series please don't do that who conferred the title of the father of the nation to mr gandhi and why well i have some people say it is mr tagore who did that some people say it was somebody else i recently saw a proclamation and a dictat by the british indian government in 1938 i think which which required all government officials colonial government officials officials to address mr gandhi as not mr gandhi or mr mohandas gandhi or mohandas gandhi but as but as mahatma gandhi this was an official diktat by the government of india the, the colonial government of india so maybe they called him mahatma and maybe somebody else called him the father of the nation i don't care who called him father of the nation 
or Mahatma, it doesn't matter. What matters is we understand this individual, this person, Mr. Gandhi, factually, from the 21st century factual context. You need to form your opinion of, of, of this uh, gentleman based on facts and data, not based on what other people have said about him in the past. Do not base your opinion on what others have said in the past, even if you may respect that historian or love that person. Please don't do that. That is a slippery slope. Then you will never have your own original thinking ever in your life. Please talk about Netaji's disappearance. Not today, but soon. But soon. I am not the expert in this matter. So maybe I should bring in the relevant expert. Don't you think? So it will happen soon. <clears throat> All right. What else do we have? I misunderstood a your question from a previous stream. Tacitus is an ancient Roman historian. Josephus is an ancient Jewish historian, both of whom independently attest to Jesus Christ. So today, if I independently attest to the flying spaghetti monster, does it bring the flying spaghetti monster into existence? <clears throat> Do you understand the difference between a claim and actual evidence? These two gentlemen, you may be in awe of them. It's fine. I, I respect your right to believe them. That's fine. I do not consider that to be clinching evidence. The two guys, 2000 or whatever, 1000 years ago, made some claims independently. Oh, nice. It's independent claims. It doesn't matter. Do we have archaeological evidence? We have archaeological evidence of Julius Caesar. We don't have archaeological evidence of Alexander. We don't have a shred of archaeological evidence of Mr. Christ. And there are various other people for whom we don't have enough archaeological evidence. And for certain classes of people, we have to we have to agree that these are mythological figures, but certain other figures, we have different criteria. Why is that? Why do we have dual standards? There are ancient Indian historians who also have referred to various Indian historical figures, but that is unilaterally considered to be myths. So I'm applying the same standards, my dear friend and friends. There is no evidence whatsoever that uh, Mr. Christ actually existed. No hard archaeological evidence. Okay, what else do we have? Um, let me take a different question. As an aspiring theoretical physicist, I would like if you gave a message to the next generation of scientists and the motivation to do something for the greater good, seek answers, embrace curiosity. Well, what can I say to the next generation of aspiring scientists? First of all, first of all, study the fundamentals. Study the fundamentals very thoroughly. Spend the majority of your time learning the fundamentals of your discipline, whether it is physics, whether it is chemistry, it is biology, or some engineering discipline. Study the fundamentals. Focus on that first. If you have your fundamentals right, you can do anything. And if you're a physicist, theoretical physicist, please spend a lot of time mastering the math. Math can get complex, but yeah, it's, it's no big deal. You can learn it. Secondly, 
if you can master the fundamentals always keep an open mind don't close off your mind don't be influenced by dogma there are so many physicists and scientists who have a dogmatic approach we know what happened to subramanian chandrashekar he um, did his research about black holes and neutron stars as a graduate student in the 1930s and the eminent physicist british physicist arthur eddington shot it down he said there should be a law against the star behaving in such a manner and because of this subramanian chandrashekar was was marginalized for a couple of decades at least even though other physicists knew he was right so this sort of group think has existed forever in science in the 1950s and 60s american doctors scientists used to endorse smoking they used to appear in tobacco ads i have shown this in the past google it they were lying to the public they were telling the public there is no danger in tobacco smoke and smoking right and the same approach continues today in a different context in the west and they said don't go against the science follow the science what i say is the science what another scientist says is, is lies what sort of approach is this they are politicizing science and they are allowing themselves to be sold to the highest bidder so to the aspiring scientists i would say please maintain your integrity don't say things because you are paid to say those things half the news you hear today is lies and behind all those all those lies are scientists today i am not going into any specifics but i think you all are intelligent enough to understand what i'm saying so that's what i would say maintain your integrity don't lie to yourself first of all <laughs> secondly focus on the basics the fundamentals master your subject spend hours hundreds thousands of hours doing that and then be curious embrace your curiosity embrace your imagination and don't fall for groupthink so that's what i can say my friends all right please explain about oumuamua <laughs> those were my people don't tell anybody Shh. right <clears throat> what else do we have okay can you please explain more about hard archaeological evidence well let's talk about the great barbaric terrorist timur do we have archaeological evidence for him what is archaeological evidence evidence you can excavate so there is a mausoleum of this monster in central asia i don't remember which city it is in look it up look it up so his mausoleum is there it is present inside the mausoleum there is a grave a tomb in which this guy's bones reside in the early 20th century the soviet uh, a bunch of a number of soviet scientists opened the tomb took out his bones determined the date and all that they determined it was it matched the date at which uh, during which timur is known to have lived they made a facial reconstruction and so on so that is hard tangible archaeological evidence of the existence of timur similarly we have certain monsters who are buried in india there is archaeological evidence because it's there it's there some day right now what is the lack of archaeological evidence it means nothing exists on the ground or under the ground that would give testimony to the fact that something happened for instance they claim there was an invasion of the aryans in india right 
Now, if you look at the archaeological record in northern India, western India, uh, present-day Pakistan, present-day Ganda, um, Afghanistan, you will see not a single evidence of any warfare. No dead bodies thrown around, no bones with cut marks on them or, or fatal wounds. You don't see evidence of destroyed or burned cities. You see nothing. That is called lack of hard archaeological evidence. Because there's nothing that supports this claim. Right? So that is the difference between the presence of archaeological evidence and the absence of hard archaeological evidence. I hope that makes it simple to understand. All right. Uh, what else do we have? Let me take another question. What role does art, particularly visual and fine arts, play in a civilization? Why has modern India produced uh, only a handful of these artists? And how was the situation in ancient times? Because I believe it was great. And how can this be changed? Art is the barometer of the progress of a civilization. Art is an integral part of culture. When we talk about art, we can. there are multiple layers to art. Multiple... Uh, multiple uh, what do should I, what should I call it? Multiple of artistic phenomena. Literature is art. Poetry is art. Dance, dance forms are art. Music is art. Painting, sculpture, all these are forms of art, right? These are different manifestations. These are different artistic manifestations of a culture. Architecture is art. And you get the point. A, a civilization that is at its pinnacle is going to see an outpouring, an out, outburst of artistic activity. Because a civilization that, that is at its peak is extremely financially prosperous, very high standards of living and politically stable. Which means that people have the time for leisure activities such as uh, going and listening to a concert a musical concert, a drama, a play, and they have the time to invest in architecture and painting and all that. So the more artistic a civilization is, the more, the greater the artistic output, the higher the uh, level of advancement of the civilization. And the same goes for science also, science and technology. So art is a beautiful and accurate barometer of the level of advancement of a civilization. Today, India is a broken civilization. India is no longer a civilization. India is merely a mediocre nation state with low standards and very low per capita GDP. People, even today, their first thought when it comes to the children is that they should get a stable, stable job. They should just survive. That is the first thing everybody has in mind. And you, if, if, if a kid wants to become an artist or a sports person, there is no money today in that. There is no state support. And therefore, we have very little artistic output in India today. And whatever is there is mediocre at best. There are very few top quality artists. There are some. There are some of them still around. But many of them are marginalized. Many of them don't have any support. And art cannot flourish without patronage from wealthy people. Either the artists themselves have to be wealthy or they should have patronage from the state or from society. Today, nothing of that sort exists. The only art today is Bollywood, which is garbage. It's garbage. And no disrespect to certain 
Bollywood, certain people who are a part of Bollywood, I have, I do have respect, I do respect certain people in Bollywood, but those are few and far between. Right? So that's the situation. The situation in ancient, ancient times was very different. We see outpouring of artistic activity everywhere. All those examples of art are today defaced, broken, and vandalized by we know whom. How can it be changed? First, make India strong and prosperous again. Make India a civilization again. Reject the colonial system, which makes India a nation state, not a civilization. And then things will change. <clears throat> right, what else do we have? Rajkumar Singh says, how did humans learn the most scientific and advanced language Sanskrit? Was it provided to us by some advanced higher beings? It contains all the words that can describe every aspect of life. Languages evolve. Before Sanskrit, there was the mother of Sanskrit, whatever it was. We don't know. Languages have been evolving in the Indian subcontinent for 70,000 or maybe slightly more than that years. Right? So Sanskrit did not appear out of, out, of, uh, out of the heavens. It evolved over time in India over thousands of years. There is absolutely no evidence that it was given to us by some advanced beings. If there is evidence, I'll be happy to accept it. I have seen no such evidence. None. None whatsoever. Right. So Sanskrit has evolved in the Indian subcontinent, uh, subcontinent over thousands of years. We don't quite know how long ago uh, what we today recognize as Sanskrit first emerged. It would have emerged out of languages that were older than it. And those languages would be the roots of Sanskrit. And before those languages, we had even before even older languages. We have lost all the evidence and all the data. But So that's how it evolved. Why is it so advanced as a language? Because India was a very advanced civilization. So language, again, is an example of how advanced or backward a culture or a civilization is. A language with thousands of synonyms, hundreds of synonyms for a certain word, is a very evolved language. It means the people were very peaceful, very civilized. They had a lot of time to look at nuances in the world. Right? So that's how it is. So it, it gives you an indication of what sort of culture and society India was in the past, which it no longer is today. Why is India's role in WWT World War II always ignored? Well, please don't ignore it. Talk about it. That's what I say. I haven't ignored India's role in the Second World War. There are certain uh, writers these days who are writing about it. Certain people are talking about it. It will not be ignored if you don't keep quiet. Talk about it. Speak about it. Spread the awareness. Learn about it. Do your own research. Look at my older videos in which I may have spoken about this. Find other sources of information. There are books. There is information online. Educate yourself and then talk about it. Don't stop talking. Tell everybody. Go tell everyone. Shout it from the rooftops. Then it will be impossible to ignore if everyone does this. Uh, can you elaborate about these exotic stars, magnetars, pulsars, neutron stars? I have answered these questions in detail. Look at my previous videos. Just search it on my YouTube channel. Go to the search box and type magnetar or pulsar or neutron star within 
a fraction of a second you will get the answer so i have answered these questions in detail i'm glad you are answer asking these questions very interesting uh, topics but i have already answered them okay i can see lots of questions i have <laughs> answered before uh i'm looking for some interesting questions that i haven't taken up before okay animish says i am puzzled by your mention about india being a hindu phobic country yet i see everyone celebrating all our festivals and cultural events with all enthusiasm am i missing something my dear friend you are missing a very big deal of what's happening in india this is why i say it's all there in front of you but you can't see it have you seen the indian constitution have you seen it in and have you seen the articles 25 to 30 29 or 30 have you read them no have you seen how india's institutions operate have you seen that the the repeated bans on certain festivities only when it comes to hinduism have you seen how hinduism is portrayed in your education system have you seen or are you not able to see it yeah some people are celebrating the the festivals with certain enthusiasm in almost every state you are seeing bans on various manifestations of indian culture whether it is in northern india western india eastern india southern india i'm sure it's not there in every state i'm i don't have all the data but you know what there are glaring examples in front of everybody but you are missing something so what can i do for you sir the entire system all the institutions see how they operate you are educated all of you please examine things meticulously and thoroughly it's all there in front of you our constitution is a foreign constitution it doesn't regard indian culture as anything worth preserving or worth valuing it is not even based or rooted in indian civilizational values and you say that india is not a civil uh, hindu phobic country what can i say sir what can i say if you wish not to look at what the situation is feel free not to okay can you please comment on the city of the monkey god found in the jungles of honduras the monkey god carving is of no other than lord hanuman is it written there in some script that it is lord hanuman there is a monkey god there okay let's say i agree i've seen that how do you know there is a connection with lord hanuman they also have monkeys everywhere there we also have monkeys everywhere here in india is it not conceivable in your mind that maybe they came up with the idea independently i am not saying there is no possibility that there may be a connection i am not saying it but as of today we don't have any actual hard evidence whether genetic evidence literary evidence linguistic evidence cultural evidence that conclusively proves this conclusively proves this there is circumstantial evidence that indicates that there may have been connections 
but nobody has investigated that and until any until somebody investigates it scientifically we will not have any evidence and therefore from the lack of evidence today it is wrong to draw connections and claim that this, this is lord hanuman who told you it is lord hanuman did you see it written somewhere did you see a carving or an inscription inscription that says it is hanuman no it's a monkey they had lots of monkeys they still have lots of monkeys maybe they also saw see the peoples the native peoples of america north as well as south america they were polytheistic people in polytheism you worship everything everything is a manifestation of the divine the sky the rivers the land the trees the plants the animals the people themselves there is divinity everywhere and therefore i am not surprised that they saw monkeys which are so intelligent and so similar to us and they saw that as a manifestation of divinity that is present everywhere and a, and a superior manifestation perhaps of divinity and that's why perhaps they worshiped their monkey god the same way indians worship lord hanuman isn't it possible aren't there other explanations that can also explain the presence of a monkey god then how can you only focus on one explanation and 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 uh, blank out everything else as of today there are multiple explanations that all are equally plausible and there is no evidence or data that eliminates certain explanations and therefore we cannot make the claim that this monkey god is a lord anuman we simply can't make it it would be completely incorrect at this juncture in the absence of evidence or data to make this claim but i'm not saying it's impossible i would what i would want is indian archaeologists indian scientists to communicate and connect with their colleagues in south america maybe visit there for a year or two and do do their own independent research with the help of the local experts then we will have a better idea but our experts <laughs> they are unfortunately not doing anything so given this status that we have we cannot make this claim all right <clears throat> is it true that because of the british rule all the diverse cultures of india felt the need to be united and this in- initiated a, a feeling of nationalism india has one culture india has one culture with lots of local manifestations it is not diverse cultures it's only one culture which has lots of local manifestations okay let me let me give you some evidence for 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 a change give me a second let me find something an image that i can show you what do we have let me share an image with all of you just give me a give me a second i'm doing it okay take a look at this please please take a look at this what does this show you what does this map show you okay let's take a bigger look at this so this is a plot of the various shakti peeths across the indian subcontinent and the shankaracharya mathas right the red line indicates some of the shakti peeths 
in India. Now, this is evidence of different cultures, is it? Are these different religions, different cultures? Or is it the same religion, the same culture? And do you see it is it extends from Balochistan to Assam, from from uh, from Punjab or, or or rather Gandhar all the way to southern India? So how can you say we had different cultures across India? Don't you see India was always united from this, the same culture, unified by the same culture, same belief system, same philosophy, same spirituality, same civilization. So on what basis can we make the claim that we had diverse culture and the British unified us because they instilled in a, a feeling of nationalism? If there was no nationalism before the British came, how did the Shankaracharya find open arms waiting for him wherever he want, wherever he went in India? If he was to be regarded as somebody from a different culture, would he be accepted? Please, my dear friends, think logically. All the information, like I say, is there in front of you. But somehow you are not able to see it. You have to find a way to open your eyes. All the information is there in front of you. Please use your own intelligence. You are all intelligent people. You may have been led to believe by your teachers that you are not intelligent. Your teachers are lying. You are all intelligent. All of you. Please, please discover the intelligence within and use it. <clears throat> Anish says, your thoughts on the recent lapse in the PM's security. Unacceptable. Unacceptable. It shows how soft of a state India is and it shows how disunited and fragmented India is. It shows how many enemies India has on its own soil. We don't need enemies outside. We have more enemies inside than outside. So what happened shows that. What else can I say? Unacceptable. I hope there are consequences. I wish there are consequences for this sort of incident. Here we go again. It is not true that India has been a single polity before the British. Okay, I need to, this is unacceptable. I, I don't need to see this sort of thing. If you don't agree, then please don't, don't watch, listen to me speak. The, the thing is, I show data and evidence and you have, you rely, some people rely on what their beliefs are. Even if you show all the data in front of them, they will say, no, I don't manunga. <laughs> Go, please. Uh, right. Make a debate with Science Journey Channel. No. No, thank you. I don't do debates and I don't do reactions. I do my own thing. I hope I am doing what adds real value to you. I have no interest in shouting matches and debates and all that nonsense that you see everywhere on your um, so-called <laughs> news channels. No, 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 no. None of that over here. All right. Um, what else do we have? Okay, this is an older question. What, why during star formation, during due to enormous pressure, fusion starts instead of forming a solid round planet-like object? What is the state of matter at the moment? 
just before the fusion starts at the core of the of these clouds and what does the core of gaseous planets like jupiter why is it liquid and not solid well you know what you can take hydrogen gas turn it into a liquid by compressing it in f- and making it cold enough and you can even freeze it solid at around around 20 degrees be- above absolute zero so it's possible now inside a planet like jupiter which is a gas giant it has a very small rocky core that's what we believe and its interior is highly compressed because of the enormous mass of the planet so all of this mass is pressing down on the interior of the planet and it 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 makes uh, the hydrogen inside jupiter very very dense at some stage it becomes what you would call a liquid it's actually a fluid and inside it is believed that there is a, sta- a, a stage a, a, a region where you have what's called metallic hydrogen where hydrogen actually acts as a conductor of electricity right so that's what it is jupiter the in- interior is very hot it's not cold it's very hot because of the of the immense pressure and same goes for saturn now when it comes to star formation the stars are much more massive than jupiter the minimum uh, mass you would need to ignite fusion is about 93 95 jupiter masses so that's the minimum mass of hydrogen fuel you need to ignite fusion how does fusion ignite because of the compression because of gravity so the upper layers pulled pushed down on the interior layers because they are heavy and in, eventually when there is sufficient mass it is it, at, the, at the core of the, of the star there is so much pressure such incredible forces at work that atoms of hydrogen start fusing together because of this pressure and that is the fusion reaction which gives rise to helium and that is the ignition point of of uh, nuclear fusion in a newborn star so when you look at the sun if you do that is a fusion reaction in process it is a nuclear fusion reaction a nuclear fusion explosion that you are seeing so the state of matter we don't quite know exactly what it will be there are certain hypotheses but what i can say is that it is incredibly dense and compressed hydrogen at the core of a star at the moment that uh, nuclear fusion uh, is triggered off okay let's take a couple more questions um okay what's wrong with steady state cosmology it doesn't fit the data that we have observational evidence observational data steady state cosmology says the universe has always ex- existed it's been here forever it's immortal nothing changes the state stays the same as what we kind of observe today but the data and the evidence that we have from observational astronomy completely is completely in contradiction with this uh, with this uh, belief what we find is that the universe is expanding and the expansion is accelerating the further you are the further the galaxies are blue shifted and so on so we have evidence that completely contradicts this this uh, this theory right so that's what's wrong with it it doesn't fit observed data you can come up with theories but then the, your theories have to be able to match observed data and they have to be able to predict phenomena that we ex- that we witness so steady state cosmology doesn't doesn't uh, fulfill these conditions and that's why it is no longer uh, a theory that's accepted 
All right. <clears throat> okay, Coach Dev says the education system is utter crap. Um, so, what should a team do? Can Hindutva make India a superpower? What role of RSS in India? Okay, let me take the first question. I will not, <laughs> I, otherwise, it will take a long time. If the education system is terrible, what should a team do? Educate yourself regardless. The education system is something you have to endure. It is something you have to tolerate. Because as of today, you still need a degree to get a good job. So just put up with it. Get your degree, whatever it is. your Whatever degree it is, in whatever field you are interested in. But apart from that, concentrate on acquiring genuine knowledge. Today, you can acquire knowledge from your phone. Anytime on demand. All the information in the world is available at your fingertips. Use that. Try to understand who you are, what your true aptitudes are, what your real strengths are. You should also know your weaknesses, but focus on the strengths and strengthen them further. Acquire skills that are in, in tune with your aptitudes and your strengths. You can acquire skills for free today. You can acquire, you can go through and learn entire courses online on whatever field you're interested in. And what you should do is spend the first 10 years minimum of your adult life investing in yourself, in your personal development. Acquire skills, acquire experience, acquire knowledge, acquire wealth. Please acquire wealth. Learn what wealth is, how to acquire it. And once you are sufficiently mature enough, then you can do something for the country with the knowledge, the skills, the experience, and the wealth that you have acquired. So that's what you can do. The education system is, is an unavoidable evil today. So just put up with it. I think in the next 10 years, it's going to be completely obsolete. But as of today, kids have to do it, unfortunately. When they should actually be spending their time, investing their time, learning real-world skills that can solve the problems of the 21st century, the education system does nothing of that. It turns children, brilliant, intelligent, bright children into sheep. It is not the fault of the kids that they don't know how to see the big picture, that they don't know how to look for information. It's something that is hammered out of them, you know. So please recognize the fact that the education system is seeks to turn you into sheep. It seeks to convert you into a clerk or a peon from the colonial days, don't allow this to happen. Don't allow your teachers to destroy your creativity and your curiosity. Invest in yourselves and you can change the country when you reach a certain age. So I wish you all the best. The very best. Does Yeti or Bigfoot exist today? We have no evidence. I'd be happy if they existed, but we have no evidence. No incontrovertible evidence. All right, where else are we? What do you think of the, about the right to veto used by the permanent members of the Security Council and how this right has probably not been used to solve any major issue? The intention of this veto power is not to solve any issues. There are five permanent members of the Security Council and this situation reflects the ground reality that was in existence in 1945. 
So the five winning powers, the five most powerful powers, became the five Security Council permanent members. India was offered this, as we have discussed this before, multiple times. In the, the great Mr. Nehru rejected that, and he said, "Give it to China." So China became the permanent member, and and the objective of the system is to consolidate their hold on power. It is not to solve any issue, right? So the the, the UN has been frozen in 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 place as if it is as if we are still in 1945. It reflects the power structure of 1945. It doesn't reflect the ground realities of today. The UK is a American vassal today. It is not a great power anymore. They have pretensions of grandeur, but they are all misplaced. They are essentially worthless, pointless today, the UK. They can no longer be regarded as a great power. The, the French, again, are not that great a power. The French, I would say, are much superior to the British when it comes to the geopolitical power. So the British don't deserve to be there whatsoever. And the other nations, the UK, uh, the UK, the US, the USSR, which is Russia today, China, and who else is there? France. Yeah, so we need to reconfigure the UN to make it more reflective of the ground realities today. And it is not designed to solve any major issues. The UN is not designed to solve issues. It is designed as an instrument for projecting power. The Chinese are doing it brilliantly with the WHO, which is, a, which is an arm of the UN. And the Americans have done it time and again. When it suits them, they will say, follow the US, the UN resolutions. When it doesn't suit them, they will completely ignore and go against, against UN resolutions. So that's how it is. India had the opportunity, but our so-called leader rejected, rebuffed these opportunities multiple times. So what needs to happen is India needs to go its own way. Forget about the UNSC, become a major power on, on, in your own right. Understand what power is and develop that. All right, my dear friends, let me take one more question. One more question for today. All right. Um, I have answered all these questions. All of these questions before. Um, <laughs> ask me interesting questions, guys. Do we have something? Okay, let me take this one. Why did some Indian scholars, ancient Indian scholars, go to the island of Socotra? And were ancient Indians ever interested in conquering Madagascar? This is the first time I'm hearing the claim that Indians went to Socotra. What evidence do we have, sir? Do we have evidence? Please mention what evidence you have. I have never come across any evidence that Indian scholars in ancient times went to Socotra. Of course, my knowledge is not universal. I may not know something. In that case, if you have some source that you know of, you could share it here. Or maybe I will do some independent research on my own and see if there is any evidence that uh, Indian scholars went to Socotra. So, so that's what I can say. Do we have anything else? India had just three unicorns in 2016. After Startup India scheme, India has 84 unicorns in 2021. 
we were only behind the US, China in terms of unicorn in 2021. <coughs> Future of our startup ecosystem, I think it's brilliant. I have criticized the government many times in the past. This is something the government needs to be uploaded for. Uploaded, not uploaded. <laughs> yeah. So this is great. 84 unicorns out of from a number of just uh, just three, five years before that. So that's a big explosion in the number of unicorns. That is great. I would like to see this trend continue. Why, why can't India have the most number of unicorns uh, in the world? So I think the government is doing something right. It needs to continue that. And if, if it continues that way, then India's future is bright. India's startup ecosystem will do well in that case. All right. Okay, that brings me to the end of today's session. Thank you very much for your questions. Tomorrow, we have a special episode, the first episode of the of the Abhijit Chavda podcast. And tomorrow's guest is the acclaimed historian and writer Anuj Dar. Same channel, 9 p.m. India time tomorrow. I look forward to seeing you all there. It's going to be a very interesting discussion. Until then, take care and I will see you soon. Bye.